Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia and Zahir Ali. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. When people think of Brooklyn, they usually think of a dense urban landscape. But for much of Brooklyn's history, it was a place of sprawling farmlands and agricultural productivity. In this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we'll go back in time to look at the long history of agriculture in Brooklyn. So these are places like Gravesend. These are places like Flatbush. These are places like Flatlands. So there's this fascinating thing that is going on in Kings County at this time where one portion of it Mm -hmm. is the third largest city in the country. Right. And the rest of it is farmland. There is this desire, I think, to think about this period of time without imagining these laborers because they are made invisible, as you said, by many of the images that we have. But we have some images that kind of remind us of who was doing the work. Anybody wanted to do a garden, they could do a garden during that time. So that's what we did. We started with the garden and it branched out uh, to include everything, sanitation, safety, all the things that matter to residents. And we had the, the, the house that was a rentee's house, we had them organized within themselves because they had tenants, you know, so they could organize. That would be helpful to them. And uh, the garden is still going. It's, it's more than 32 years old now. Julie, it's really hard to imagine Brooklyn as this kind of sprawling farmland. When I think of Brooklyn, I think when many of us think of Brooklyn, we just think of this really congested, busy, overpopulated city. Totally. It's like an icon of urbanity, you know? Exactly. But, I mean, listen to what some Brooklynites had to say about it only 100 years ago. Um, They would take in a vista of the finest farmlands in America, almost treeless for six miles and beyond, in full view of the Atlantic Ocean. The most magnificent growth of ornamental trees in the country, the dwellings of the comfortable Dutch owners peeping through an occasional opening in the trees, giving evidence of thrift and competency. I mean, these places sound like these sort of bucolic enclaves, right? With the exception of the view of the Atlantic Ocean, it's very little house on the prairie. Totally. Totally. (laughs) Or like, um, you know, like northern England. I mean, just um, a really romantic vision, but one that in fact described Brooklyn for most of its history. I mean, I think that's what's so interesting about this sort of history of agriculture in Brooklyn is that we're talking about most of Brooklyn's history um, up until the early 20th century. How did this come to be? And how were farms able to survive and thrive in one of the most populated um, areas in the country until almost 100 years ago? And what's really fascinating is the way that Brooklyn's agricultural life is so interdependently related to what's going on in New York City. And then within that whole system of agriculture, it has its own dependencies on different kinds of labor. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, I might even say that New York's development, its rapid urbanization, which happens earlier than Brooklyn's in the colonial era, is entirely dependent on Brooklyn's agriculture, right? Because Brooklyn is sort of the breadbasket. It is the nearby agricultural center that creates the foodstuffs that allows New York's population to swell. And by the time we get to the you know first decades after the American Revolution, New York is the biggest city in the country. And it's able to be so because of the agricultural might just across the river. So let's kind of walk people through this, how this came to be and the way it was transformative and transformed over time. I mean, of course, our story starts back in the in the 17th century with the arrival of Dutch families who bought up large swaths of farmland and brought with them Dutch farming techniques and also labor practices. And part of that, of course, is about the history of slavery here in Brooklyn. Um, 
Brooklyn, because of its agricultural economy, was enormously reliant on enslaved labor to produce the many grains that um, were were brought to Brooklyn Village, um, where the ferry is today, where the ferry was 400 years ago, which were then carried across the river on ferries to the growing city of, of New York. The numbers of this are staggering because when people think of slavery in the United States, Most people think of the South. They certainly don't think of New York, and they don't think of the North. So in 1698, 15% of the population of Brooklyn were enslaved. That's right, yes. And this number only grows. So by 1800, that is now 40%. Yeah, and I think what's really important about that is that 1800 is the year after the passage of a gradual manumission law here in New York. So you have, you know, 15% at the end of the 17th century. By the time you get to like 1730s, it's 25%. Mm-hmm. It goes up again over the course right. of the 18th century. And then you hit this high of 40% in 1800. So even as a lot of white Brooklynites know that slavery is going to end, they're still buying up slaves and, and employing them on their farms. And there's a significant number of white families owning people, right? Like this isn't a situation where the enslaved population is concentrated under one or two super planter plantation type arrangements. That's right. Well, I think Brooklyn, it falls somewhere in between these kind of two poles, right? So first of all, let's just also give context on the population. At the turn of the, you know, from the 18th to the 19th century, there's like about 2,000 people in Brooklyn. So these numbers are tiny. Mm -hmm. This is a shockingly sparsely populated area until we get to the 19th century, right? And in New York, you have a situation where, just as you describe, some families own only one or two or three. Slaves are more sort of spread out among families Mm -hmm. rather than concentrated the way that we think about in the antebellum South. Brooklyn slices it down the middle a bit because there are families that have a concentration of enslaved people in their families. Now, If we're talking about, you know, South Carolina in the 1830s, you're talking about like hundreds or thousands of enslaved people. In Brooklyn, you might be talking about 20, Mm. right? But Mm -hmm. that is different. And I think one thing that is important is because of agriculture, because of the need to constantly till the land to provide those foodstuffs to New York, you do need a like constantly replenishing group of enslaved people to be there doing that work. Whereas the labor in New York is quite different, right? right? Right. It's more household. It's often professional. But you raise an interesting point in that we need to understand the varieties of slavery within the United States, right? That slavery didn't manifest itself in the same way. It depended on the kind of labor. It depended on the population size. It depended upon what other kinds of opportunities there were for other kinds of work, for other kinds of economic industries. This is not something that people think about when we think about Brooklyn, that that slavery is so critical to its early economic development. I think one of the things that kind of really hammers us home for me is the fact that farmers by the late 18th century are not out there necessarily tilling Mm. the land, even though I think a lot of Brooklyn lore might want to have this kind of almost romantic vision of, you know, um, know, slave owners and enslaved people working side by side in the fields. I mean, these were, you know, they called themselves gentlemen farmers, right? Um, (laughs) You know, they had manners that were almost like plantations, right? right? Um, And they sort of oversaw the books and they oversaw the transport of their goods to the urban center near by while the majority of the labor was, you know, done by enslaved people. And, you know, I think that number about basically the the percentage of enslaved people going up Mm -hmm. even after the winds of abolition are kind of blowing through New York State seems really telling to me that this form of labor was entrenched in society in Brooklyn in a way that was difficult for them to dismantle both economically and kind of rhetorically. So before we dig into this, First, I want to kind of clarify what we mean when we say Brooklyn, because I think we often use Brooklyn and Kings County interchangeably. Mm -hmm. But an important thing that people need to know is that 
for most of the 19th century and before that, Brooklyn was actually just one part of Kings County. That's right. Right? It was made up of a lot of different little towns. Now, Brooklyn is growing big, 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 big. But if you look at the whole map of Kings County, it's the majority of those other towns that actually remain rural, right? And remarkably agricultural. So these are places like Gravesend. These are places like Flatbush. These are places like Flatlands. So there's this fascinating thing that is going on in Kings County at this time where one portion of it Mm -hmm. is the third largest city in the country. Right. And the rest of it is farmland. In the 1820s, though, a lot changes for farms in Brooklyn. And one of them is the impact of manumission on the labor supply. Absolutely. So 1827 is when we see full manumission for all enslaved people in New York State. Brooklynites fight this tooth and nail. I mean, we have evidence in our archives that people are exchanging enslaved people in like 1826, Mm. which I think is so fascinating, you know? But it nonetheless hits Brooklyn. And interestingly, you do see some evidence of people, of African-Americans in Brooklyn still either living with their owners, um, continuing to work for them, possibly for free in kind of indentured or slave-like circumstances. Uh, All this to say is that slavery doesn't go as a practice easily in Brooklyn. You continue to see a lot of people working on these sort of far out, sparsely populated farmlands well into the 1830s and 40s. But that's not the only thing changing in the 1820s, right? That's right. Even before manumission, with the completion of the Erie Canal in 1825, that radically transforms how quickly farm produce can get to the marketplace, uh, you see the impact this has on farms. So for these farms in Brooklyn or in in Kings County had been the major supplier of food to the growing New York City population. And the primary kind of produce they were providing were grains. The Erie Canal, for people who are kind of geographically challenged, as I know I can be, (laughs) the Erie Canal connects the Hudson River to the Great Lakes, right? Which then makes it easier to get produce from the Midwest to the eastern seaboard, to the northeast. Uh, Before this, if you were in the Midwest farm, you had to set your stuff down sail down the Mississippi River and then sail around the Gulf of Mexico up the Atlantic coast. With the Erie Canal, you cut the time of transportation almost in half. And so this makes it so much easier to get those grains from the Midwest. And the grains that are being sent from the Midwest are from huge farms, Massive right? Farms, so totally. these small farms that once supplied all of the grain in New York City from Kings County can no longer compete. So they have to change. And they do. I think this is actually one of the things that's most interesting about Brooklyn is that they don't just die out. They just, they change. Um, And so you have a shift from Brooklyn being like the bread basket of New York to the fruit basket of New York. I love that phrase. Thanks. I do too. (laughs) (laughs) Because basically these become market gardens. They become orchards. They grow fruits and vegetables. Cabbages were a major mainstay of farms in Brooklyn. Um, And they continue to use the transportation routes um, that had been carved out since the 17th century to bring these goods to New York City. I was listening to you talk about the Erie Canal. I'm so struck by how much of the story of agriculture in Brooklyn and in the country is so transportation determinative. I mean, one of the reasons why produce becomes a thing that is more viable and competitive for Brooklyn farms to provide to New York City is because you need a short transportation time, exactly. right? They're so, perishables. Yeah, these are perishables in ways that grains were not. So it's not surprising, but really interesting Adaptive, that, if yeah, you will. that yeah. they're like, well, let's find the market that we can serve, right? With the produce, you know, that we have and the way that we can be competitive in the agricultural marketplace. Exactly. And yeah, that's very much the result of what transportation brings and still what it can't provide, right? It really reinforces the idea that, like, um, distance is so relative (laughs) and notions of, um, like, development and frontiers are so historically rooted because, you know, like these farmers, even into the 19th century, it would take them a full day to get these goods from their farms in Kings County to the ferry, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this was a, a long trip. The simplicity of the Erie Canal and transforming that sort of very 
inefficient form of transportation into a rapidly inefficient and much more cost-effective way of transporting things. It's just so fascinating to think that something coming from the Midwest could be cheaper and kind of right. faster yeah. than something coming from the heart of Kings County. And I just find that fascinating. So what eventually caused the end of agriculture as this kind of mainstay industry in Brooklyn? Oh, I like I'm really excited for us to dig into this question because it goes back to that theme of transportation. And I think it's development, but development like real estate development mm. in places like Flatbush Flatlands. All these areas are now sort of residential neighborhoods, urbanized residential neighborhoods today. That's made possible by transportation too, right? That's right. But a different kind of transportation. That's transportation of people, the establishment of the subway going all the way out into these areas, making it possible for these to be commuter suburbs for people who are working either in downtown Brooklyn or working in Manhattan as well. So those places where it was taking, you know, Mr. Leffert's um, days to get his agricultural goods to the ferry now becomes an hour commute for the people who live there a century later. So as urbanization just kind of creeped its way through the county, consuming these farms, what became of the farmers? What did they think about what was happening? You know, it's such an interesting question because I think if you asked them, (laughs) (laughs) they would say, oh, isn't this so sad? The end of an era, the end of a lifestyle. There's like a romanticism that prompted all kinds of, you know, nostalgic Mm -hmm. looks backwards. With the founding of the Long Island Historical Society, you have a lot of these older, really established Dutch families donating their papers and looking to preserve this way of life that is sort of like, oh, it's receding into the background what once was. In fact, they made a killing. (laughs) These families made an enormous amount of money by selling their land to real estate developers um, who then turned it Mm -hmm. into lots of different things, apartments, different kinds of housing. And I think there's a really interesting sort of through line about the financial benefits that these families gained over time. First off, the labor yeah. of enslaved Yeah, I was just thinking about it. I was like, <laughs> they, they really knew how to stay in business, right? That's right. And then off of the land yeah. that for centuries had created the abundance that made New York grow and right. then eventually made Brooklyn grow. And, then and they, it, they adapted from bread basket, like you said, to fruit basket. And now that farming was no longer as viable, they're like, well, we'll sell the land. That's right. That's right. And that's where we end up in the beginning of the 20th century. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush in Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. So here, we've been talking a lot about these farms, but it's one thing to talk about how sort of rural and agricultural Brooklyn was. It's another thing to see it. And that's why I'm so glad that in our archives, we have these unbelievable images depicting places that are sparsely populated, that are sort of wide open space as far as the eye can see. And some of these are less than 100 years old. Yeah, you know, you read those quotes at the beginning of the first segment where people describing what the farmland was like. And, you know, that was surprising just to even hear that description. Uh, similarly, or even more so, to see the pictures of these farms. Uh, it, it is such a striking image to imagine this in Brooklyn. It's kind of mind-blowing. I know. So to give everybody a little bit of context, Zaheer and I are looking at three images from Brooklyn Historical Society's photography collections. Um, we actually have here at BHS over 100,000 photographs dating back to the early 19th century. And the sort of the three that we're looking at right now, which we will, of course, link to on our show notes, all date back to the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, one of my favorite pictures, this was actually my the back of the wallpaper on my computer for many wow. years here at work, um, is this image um, of an early Brooklyn farm. And so this image of this 
this Dutch farmhouse, which is circa 1890, is actually a lantern slide. And essentially, a lantern slide was a glass slide that you would then project light through to display it in much larger format on a wall. Like a lot of lantern slides, this was actually hand-colored. And you can see from this that the colors are kind of pastel. Mm -hmm. There's definitely like an artificialness to them, but they have a really um, nostalgic almost palette. Mm -hmm. The house is a very pale yellow. Um, the cows kind of pop out. The, the the plow in the background looks almost brownish pinkish. Mm-hmm. You can also see from the color just a little bit of damage on the slide because it is, you know, 130 years old. So this picture has a small clabbered farmhouse with another house in the background. And we see um, a cow... <laughs> a rather large cow right. grazing in the untended field along with what appears to be you know, two sort of wooden pieces of agricultural machinery and a beautiful tree with a with a ladder. The ladder pointed up to the tree. There's also a ladder on the side of the house suggesting work, suggesting activity. That's right. One of the shutters looks like it's falling off. I mean, there, all of these things to kind of convey a quaintness to this location. And themes of like real country life. I didn't you say a uh, little house on the prairie yeah, earlier? I think it totally feels like that. It feels yeah. like, you know, it feels like a frontier. Yes. You know, and yes. I don't use that word lightly because it really does feel like you're on the periphery of something with this picture. I get a similar reaction when I look at the next picture that's in our series here, Early Brooklyn Farm, circa 1880. And this image, we actually see people. <laughs> this is a photograph that has two farmers tending to their farm. And it looks like it's in an orchard because you can see the trees. It looks like they're laying hay or something. I, I actually couldn't see the second farmer. I had to look really closely because he's on top kinda of the... Hidden. Yeah, he's on kind of on top or looks like he's on top of the bale of hay. But this this brings back to my mind when you were talking about the the produce the from the bread basket to the fruit yes, basket totally this is your produce production at yeah. work right and i'm also struck by this is a very big animal <laughs> yeah <laughs> who is pulling this haystack right yes. um as they spread hay throughout their orchard and it's kind of a good reminder of the importance of draft animals to the process of farming. You would have seen animals like this all over, including cattle that were raised mm-hmm. for slaughter mm-hmm. being brought across on the ferry to New York as well. So it wasn't just agriculture, it was actually animal production as well. And the last image I think is interesting because it's not really depicting farming in action. It's depicting a person. And so this is an image around the turn of the century of one of the Lefferts family. The Lefferts family had been here since the 1660s. And these were like the gentleman farmers that I talked about in the previous segment. So these are people who hired people to actually work their farms. Many of them were actually politicians, lawyers, industrialists even. You know, some of them even actually lived in Manhattan and kept their land out here in Brooklyn. And I mean, see here, when I first saw this picture, my immediate thought was like, gone with the wind. Yeah, no, he clearly is not like the men that we saw in the previous image, right? This man is dressed to the nines. I see even a little chain watch hanging from his pocket. Totally like fancy cane. Yeah, like he looks straight out of what we would have thought is the South. And I spent quite a bit of time in this archival collection, the Lefferts collection, which we'll also link to on the show notes. And as far as I can tell, this was the last Lefferts to refer to himself as a farmer. Wow. And this is, again, the early 20th century. So this guy didn't lift a finger. No. You know, out in the farm. But it gives a really clear conception of, like, we farmed the land. Like, this did not actually involve labor. And so here I think James Lefferts is kind of playing this role of making invisible the actual physical labor of the people who had tilled his lands for, like, at this point, you know, dozens Mm -hmm. of generations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in fact— As much as I love these pictures, I have to acknowledge that there is this sort of nostalgic romanticism built into them that is troubling to me um, in the way that it erases that labor. That's right. Right? That's right. Um, Of course, we see those men um, um, over there, but they're not really doing much. You know what I mean? And actually, your focus is really just drawn to the bucolic scene rather than the actual backbreaking labor that anyone might have been doing on land like this. And it really, like, 
again, like that theme of like that kind of gone with the wind um, notion of a like a bucolic past, as much as I'm fascinated by these pictures, makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when we set out to do this episode about Brooklyn's agriculture, I don't think it was as clear to me initially um, the road that we would go down, which is that you can't talk about this period. You can't talk about this aspect of Brooklyn's history without talking about the labor that's being exploited, whether it's enslaved people or newly freed people who are still in these arrangements of power and exploitation. And, you know, there is this desire, I think, to think about this period of time without imagining these laborers because they are made invisible, as you said, by many of the images that we have. But we have some images that kind of remind us of who was doing the work. Yeah, this other image that we found that stands in stark contrast to the first three that we talked about is of an African-American worker sitting on what looks like an extremely old-fashioned plow, Mm -hmm. sitting next to two horses, kind of have their butts turned towards us. (laughs) And this image is actually by William Vanderveer of one of his workers, titled On the Vanderveer Farm. And based on the structure of the photograph, it's clearly been published, uh, though I'm not exactly sure where this was published. Um, That's not referenced in in the record that we have of it. But it has a title below it, which indicates that it looks like it came from some kind of publication. And actually, now that I think about it, this has a romantic feeling to it as well. Um, This is not a man who is engaged in heavy labor. He looks like he's resting after a long day's work. He looks like he's posing. He looks like he's posing. And actually, if you look closely at the image, it also looks like it's been touched up as well. The horses show that it looks like there's some kind of 1900s right. Photoshop. Yeah, that version of Photoshop for sure. <laughs> there's some there's some shadow added to give some musculature to the horses. I don't mean to like overemphasize these interesting connections to the South, but all of this to me smacks of this late 19th century, early 20th century romance of reunion. Um, The idea that we can sort of rewrite our antebellum past by whitewashing out the exploitation Mm -hmm. of largely African-American people um, and in fact incorporate that history into a much more romantic notion of a bucolic past. Brooklyn is not the South, but it's fascinating to me how nationalized these themes have become as displayed through the photography that we're looking at. Yeah, I mean, it's that desire or nostalgia to that past. It is also a growing sense that the city is not the answer. (laughs) You know, people want to move away from the overcrowded cities. I mean, late 19th century, early 20th century, you have people like Jacob Reese, like highlighting the dilapidated housing, the crowded tenements, you know, just no one wants to live there. So I'm not surprised that you have these two trends combining, right? Nostalgia for the uh, antebellum life in the South and uh, a desire to get out of the city to these open wide spaces. I mean, even with the photographs that or the images that we've we've looked at, um, really the star of the the image is the land, right? That's just right. the spaciousness That's of land. Right. Just like how the images are framed, the people are really small compared to like all mm-hmm. of the like land that's in the image. And so there is this part of the um, growing uneasiness with the city is driven by a kind of xenophobia. It's driven by anti-immigrant sentiment. It's driven by a sense that the city is a place of corruption, a city of a place of vice, right? So, and then, you know, during the 1910s, 20s, um, you have with Prohibition, you have with the Scopes trial, you have, everything is like the city is secularization. The city is right. immoral. The city is lax. The city is overcrowded. And so I'm not surprised that we see these depictions in these images that that celebrate a different kind of life. And and certainly this becomes a marketing tool. That's right. Right? For, for people to sell this story 
even as they're actually selling the actual land that is the source of this nostalgia. I mean, and this brings us to a map that we pulled um, for everybody to look at, because you're exactly right, here. And I mean, gosh, think about this. In the early 20th century, a Jacob Reese tenement existed in the same city as these images. Yeah. Right. And the power of that, the marketing potential behind that then gets really picked up by real estate firms that are brought in to sell off this land as farms become dismantled. And as, you know, quote unquote, gentlemen farmers like James Lefferts realize that the land is worth more for real estate than it is for agriculture. And you really see a lot of this land then being marketed for its fresh air, yeah. for its wholesomeness and wide open spaces, for its sharp contrast to the, you know, the the pluralistic, high density life of the city. And all of this is, of course, made possible by the extension of subway lines, trolley lines, bus lines to neighborhoods like Flatbush and making them accessible to downtown Brooklyn, Manhattan, and beyond. And so this is remarkably conveyed in this map um, that's titled The Village of Flatbush as it was in the year 1870 and um, by the Clark Realty Company, published in 1943. Amazing. Right? So here's a realty company selling land in 1943 And to do so, they reach back almost seven decades, right, to tell this story that we're talking about of this nostalgic land. So, Julie, tell us about this map. As a teacher, I love documents like this because they're like they're talking about like a million different generations yes, at one yes, time, right? Yes, yes. So this 1943 map is, of course, about 1943, but it depicts the Flatbush of 1870, which looks very different than the Flatbush of 1943, after which the land of Lefferts and other families had been sold off. Single-family houses had been built. The population density had grown significantly, and essentially places like Flatbush become a commuter suburb um, for downtown Manhattan, for places in in, um, downtown Brooklyn where people might have had their jobs, right? And the people who were living in these neighborhoods were diverse, but they were white, right? I mean, these are like largely ethnic families with new opportunities thanks to labor gains, thanks to things like New Deal initiatives, Mm -hmm. the GI Bill, um, who have a kind of upward mobility that their parents did not have. The idea that you could live in a single family home um, after, you know, your parents or grandparents had come over and lived in poverty in, you know, Little Italy or right. Brownsville or other places, this was a remarkable thing, right? And the way that these areas were being sold was by pointing to this bucolic, <laughs> rural, nostalgic past. And the names here are familiar. If you know anything about Brooklyn's landscape or Dutch history, the Martens family, the Stryker family, the Lefferts family, the Hageman family. So appealing to that kind of genealogical reach Mm -hmm. back to the 17th century that the families in the neighborhoods would have provided. And you too, potential buyer. Could be a Martens. That's right. That's right. In this segment of Voices of Brooklyn, we're going to listen to two oral histories of two people who are really participating in the resurgence of agriculture in Brooklyn, but in a very different way than what we've talked about for most of this episode. Both of the narrators that we're going to listen to in this segment are from the Voices of Crown Heights Oral Histories collection. The first narrator is Greg Todd, who has worked in Crown Heights since 1987, first as a nonprofit developer and then as a commercial real estate broker. He is a devotee of the permaculture movement and is involved in urban gardening at the Imani Gardens in Crown Heights. I've always been like an environmentalist. And um, some friends of mine um, were... Actually, it was my wife at the time who got involved in this group talking about voluntary simplicity and how to live better for less and so on and so forth. And so she started telling me about it. So I went down, I got involved in this reading group. 
and they just kept reading more books. They were meeting at the um, Starbucks down in 7th Avenue in Park Slope. And um, so I just stuck with the group, and they eventually started meeting in Manhattan. They got more people involved, and we eventually morphed into this whole permaculture thing, which is kind of like about how to live very sustainably and involves designing your life, including your the way you eat, the way you live, and everything else in a way that's permanently sustainable. So I got really into this stuff. The group changed its name um, to something called Green Phoenix Permaculture. And we eventually moved a bunch of our people up to a Methodist camp near High Falls, New York, where we um, built a CSA. We built a straw bale house, a timber frame straw bale house. One of the people living there was an architect. And um, so he and his wife built this house over the course of four or five years. We conducted a whole series of, uh, of workshops about um, natural buildings and all at this Methodist camp. And then in um, 2007, I took the first uh, my first permaculture design course at the Methodist camp uh, from a guy named Jeff Lawton, who is like the premier permaculture teacher in the world. He actually worked for Bill Mollison, who's the guy who kind of invented the term permaculture from Tasmania in the 70s, and wrote the first permaculture manual. And Jeff Lawton was his like chief assistant and buddy and yada yada. So I took the class directly from Lawton. And the same year, with a bunch of other graduates from the class, we found this garden in uh, the Monty Garden, which was just empty at that point in time. It was owned by NYRP, but there was nobody gardening there. One of the permaculture grads was also a work for NYRP. He says, oh, you got to come out to this garden. No one here, yada, yada, yada. So we went out there and started gardening there. And uh, we did lots of cool stuff. We uh, built a solar-powered aquaponic system. We built a water catchment system. Um, we eventually built a cob oven to make pizza in. Um, and then about 2009, in a coalition with Just Foods, NYRP built what's, at the time, the biggest chicken coop in New York. And we had about 50 chickens in this giant chicken coop. And uh, a, a chock, a flock of, uh, a group of people that we call the chicken tenders, who uh, basically took care of the chickens. And eventually they moved on, but another local woman stepped up, a woman named um, Lydia Schmidt, and she became the, the chief chicken tender. And she has had a number of apprentices over the years. They still, NYRP teaches a series of chicken workshops there and people from all over the city have been coming there for the chicken workshops led by Lydia. And uh, so a lot of people know the garden. I say, Amani, oh, is that where they have the chicken workshops? So it's been a really great uh, consciousness raiser uh, for people in the community. And so it's been really cool. Listening to this interview clip in the context of the conversation we've been having throughout this podcast episode, what strikes me is this like pull, the continuous draw of the idea of agriculture, right? Like when he talks about going upstate and the hay and the chicken coop and, well, first of all, just the fact that there's a chicken coop in Crown Heights, like I did not know that. I love it. And I live in Crown Heights. Oh. But again, the- and chicken tenders. And chicken tenders, I love that. hungry for chicken tenders. I love that. But you know, this, this idea that it seems like throughout Brooklyn's history, agriculture has been an anchor, if not of the economy, then of the imagination. And that really comes across here. 
I mean, it's like, I think I like both completely agree with you and endorse what you said, but also was like struck by a slightly like a, like a counter narrative of it, which Mm -hmm. is that I was just thinking about how hard it was to engage in agriculture in this like phase of late capitalism that we live in, in the 21st century. So as I'm hearing it, I'm like, gosh, like. A, bit, a reading group every day at Starbucks? I mean, of course, it's like, I was like, who has the time? Right, do you know what right. I mean? But like, um, I also like, what unbelievable dedication, yeah. do you know? And then committing to like, this movement upstate and then finding this location, I was struck by the labor that was involved in it. And there is sort of like a, if we go back to a hundred years earlier, there's like an ease to it and like a ubiquity of, of agriculture. Well, it's so funny that both of our reactions kind of represent the duality of this tension that we've been mm-hmm. talking about throughout this whole yes. podcast, which is this like on the one hand kind of nostalgic because I'm I'm totally. moved by the romanticism of building a garden with a chicken coop and you are highlighting the invisible labor that is involved. And to the do impracticality that work. Yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so just it's just like when we talk about the the 19th century and 18th century quote unquote farmers yes. And then all of the hidden that's exploited right. labor. That's right. Right. That's right. So I think that that's that's funny that we had that reaction. Um, that those themes are still very much prominent. But what I am struck by in this, I completely agree with you, is that sustainability is an effort, and maybe to some extent, like. An almost a futile effort yeah. in the sense that this kind of work actually is micro game changing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so they, this transformed a neighborhood, this transformed people's lives, but it's, it's a, the scale of it as compared to the scale of like big agriculture, which if you want to be like very, you know, grandiose, like the Erie Canal opening in right. 1825 right. essentially facilitated yeah. that, the, the, the mechanisms that made that possible by the, the, the 20th century. The scale of those is shocking. The difference of that, right. it's exponential, right. Right? right? But it is also it 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 really gives this, I think, this like comparison of global and local, and how important this kind of work was on the local level here in Crown Heights. Now we'll listen to our second narrator, also from the Voices of Crown Heights collection, and this is Sophie Johnson. Sophie Johnson lived in Brooklyn for about 50 years, most of that time in Crown Heights. She is a musician and retired arts administrator and has served as a board member and director of programming for The New Muse on the community program staff at Brooklyn Museum and as director of the Magnolia Tree Earth Center. In this clip, she talks about her work in helping to organize the 1100 Bergen Street Block Association. Well, in Crown Heights, I moved to Crown Heights. I moved to Bergen Street uh, between Nostrand and uh, what's the other one? Brooklyn Avenue, along there. And as soon as I got there, I started organizing. (laughs) Uh, The rockers from the kids on that block were, were atrocious. They have wonderful architecture. All those buildings, you watch those buildings? They are beautiful, really, really, and different and beautiful sections. There was a rental building there, so we had rentees, and most were homeowners. But across the street were five empty lots, and they were, they were deep, you know, dug out deep, and it was full of garbage and all that. So naturally, coming from where I had been and experiences I've had with environment and with gardens, First thing I thought about is, we've got to put a garden in this place. We could do it. So I started, we met on one of the porches of one of the neighbors, and that was our first meeting. And we formed the um, our block association, the Burger Street Block Association, um, 1100 Block Association. And we started from there. And it caught on. We outlined our, our objectives and our constitution, our everything. And... Um, we went ahead to, oh, to get the buildings, to see what we could do with the buildings. So the city gave us permission <clears throat> to use the buildings. And what happened is they sold it to us, sold us the buildings. I paid a dollar for each of those buildings, one dollar. And I kept the receipts because I said nobody would ever believe this. So I said, so I will always hold this receipt. 
At least money orders I brought to pay for, for the building. So it was in the ownership of the Bergen Street Block Association. So we had incorporated ourselves and we were able to get the buildings. That was at the time when the city was getting rid of a lot of property in whatever way it could. Is this the 70s or 80s? Uh, that was in the 80s, uh-huh, yeah. And uh, they, they would get just, anybody wanted to do a garden, they could do a garden during that time. So that's what we did. We started with the garden. And it branched out uh, to include everything, sanitation, safety, all the things that matter to residents. And we had the, the, the house that was a rentee's house, so we had them organized within themselves because they had tenants, you know, so they could organize. That would be helpful to them. And uh, the garden is still going. It's, it's more than 32 years old now. The person who was my secretary, was secretary of our group during that time, she took over for the beautification. And she did it for so many years. So at the church where I am now, uh, I started recognizing some of the community people who have been so wonderful during my time in community work and whatnot. And each year I have my recitals, I honor a different person. So that, that person was one of my honorees, uh, what is it, uh, two years ago, Yvonne. Yvonne is, was an honoree. Two other presidents before me passed away. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Two, um, they didn't, whatever, but two passed away. And I didn't stop there, because so I was on Burger Street, so I was there for a good little while, and I saw that, that was, it was going well, and we needed, we had to move, because our house was being sold where we were staying. So were those buildings, before we moved to the next point, mm -hmm. um, were they, the ones that you got for a dollar, were they turned into, like, Co-op No, those build. It was empty lots. That's what they oh, sold me. And so that was there was nothing but garbage. Space. Yes, okay, okay. garbage. So they had to clean out out for us. The city had to clean it out, and then I lined up immediately with the planter planetary system. You know, and they would come and bring the uh, produce, whatever. Then we get the children on the block. As soon as they saw the grow grow truck come, they would start running to it, and the, uh, and times before that they would just. Even when we had um, Halloween, and don't even talk about Halloween, they were horrible. They put, uh, what is it, eggs on everybody's windows, and you know, garbage cans were messed up and, and thrown over. I mean, they just were terrible. So I said, this will make nice kids out of them because we have this project. So every time the grow truck would come, my, my son was with the two, or he was a teen, he was an older teen, but he would come and they would help. And the, move the plants, move everything into the garden. And we had some nice things. We, we One of the men was, was very able, and he built a platform. So we had a stage, you know, inside of it. We had so many areas. We had a willow tree that came over. It was so gorgeous. So later on, a storm took it out. You know, like lightning must have hit that tree, and it went. It was so gorgeous. We had some beautiful things, and now it's beautiful. What struck me about this clip as we listened to it was almost taking me back to the conversation we had about the 1940s, um, that this was this moment, this really small window where this kind of thing was possible, right? When she talks about buying this land for a dollar, I mean, anyone who knows real estate and especially New York real estate, to be able to have gotten land for a dollar is just Amazing. It's just like a crystallization of exactly why the Voices of Crown Heights oral history project was so important because today Crown Heights is ground zero for gentrification, yeah. right? Yeah. It's hard to even imagine that something like this was ever possible, certainly not possible today. And these are the kinds of almost like impossible stories to chronicle. Like, I want to see that money <laughs> that $1 money order yes. so badly. Yes, what, a, yes. what a remarkable historical yeah. artifact. But I think you're exactly right. This is such a very specific moment. It's, you know, we've talked a lot about like, um, you know, the fiscal crisis of the 1970s, of the impact on neighborhoods like Crown Heights. But at the same time as that, hap that that is happening, people like Sophie Johnson are building these unbelievable restorative infrastructures. And there's, of course, that irony that her establishment of this garden and the unbelievable 
work that she put into this neighborhood, you know, pl- like plants the seeds for a renaissance of a yeah, neighborhood yeah. that is now in the throes of yeah. gentrification. No, and it, it's so funny because two things um, you just said strike me. One um, is the city is not enough, right? One of the reasons why you see this, these urban gardening, community gardens projects happening in the last 50 years, right, is that Life in the city was just not enough for quality of life. It was not enough for... so. That, like, I don't know how many people being fed by the chickens in the chicken coop. I don't know how many people being fed by the garden at the Bergen Street Block Association. But there's something about agriculture that is really just compelling, but also helps, I don't know, balance life in the city, bring peace from life in the city, retreat from life in the cities. And all of these are like, maybe I'm sounding nostalgic for land and agriculture and because I'm using words like retreat and peace and calm. And again, that invisibilizes the labor that goes to create all of this um, and the privilege to have the resources to organize this, right? Um, but that, that I, I, I'm, I, that's what I'm, I'm grappling with. But of course, what the difference is, is that when we talked about a labor system in the first segment, we were talking about an exploitative yeah. labor system yeah. by which wealthy white people were benefiting, were gaining enormous capital from the un you know, like the unpaid labor right. of of enslaved people, right? right? This is something that is the opposite, right. right? So this is a grassroots movement of people who are putting in labor and then receiving the literal fruits of their labor, right? They are witnessing the fruits of their labor. And in a way that like feels almost like, again, this just fleeting moment outside of a system of capitalism, right? And you see these kinds of moments throughout history, the free produce That's movement right. in the mid-19th century, And then even again, like on a very micro level, bits of it today, the role of food justice organizations that are working in neighborhoods like Red Hook, like Crown Heights, like Brownsville, um, to put that kind of labor back in the hands of community members and then also at the same time solve these massive health issues um, that food deserts precipitate in poor neighborhoods. So it is, again, like to witness this in the shadow of global capitalism is a little disturbing and disheartening, but to silence that out and to focus on the impact of somebody like Sophie Johnson on her neighborhood is incredibly empowering. And I think to put this in the context of the long history of the role of agriculture in Brooklyn, that even as Brooklyn, as we know today, you know, we started out by saying a lot of people, when they think of Brooklyn, they just think of a city. They think of this urbanized, dense place. Industrial. Uh, industrial. Yep. And to see that there are still these pockets where, um, you know, to use a metaphor of like, you know, the plants, they're still growing, right? Like they're they're finding their way through the soil. These seeds are still finding this, finding light. And I think that that says a lot about the role of agriculture in Brooklyn. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our audio editor is Tim DeQuino, and our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. 